Um, so for anybody that wasn't here last week, um, we actually started discussing uh, really the Church of Jesus Christ. And we actually went through some statistics as far as understanding in our generation, meaning the younger generation that's kind of presently um, in the body of Christ at this hour, the understanding of the, the local church, and actually, which is a lack of understanding of the local church, and how basically this generation that's 30 and younger is soon going to be past the baton of carrying the leadership and the authority in, in the church of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, our theology and our biblical understanding of the local church is what will be multiplied. But also, financially, we will be the ones responsible to carry the ministry forward by financing it. And we basically looked at the breakdown of the understanding and even the value of the local church in our generation and the lack of understanding because we've become such an individualized generation. It's me, myself, and I. And really, how does the gospel profit me? And how does my ministry gift profit me? And what kind of platform does it give me? And really what we looked at scripturally is the understanding in Ephesians where it says that Jesus loved the church and he gave himself for it. And it was the church of Jesus Christ that he gave himself up. It's specifically Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. It says Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So we kind of use that as a scriptural context, but moved all throughout scripture in understanding the emphasis that Christ placed upon the church. And whatever the context for Christ valuing the church is the, the emphasis that we should place upon valuing the church. And the fact that he did not necessarily just say that he loved the church, but he distanced himself from it because it was so dysfunctional and broken, he just couldn't have any part of it, but he gave himself for her. That really from the place of love, it drives us to give into the place of sacrifice. And so basically what we did is identified that we want to see a generation coming up that will take the authority, but also take the leadership and have a clear biblical understanding of the value in the heart of God for the bride of Christ. If you look at Revelations, that's what it's all leading up to. The bride will marry a lamb. The bride of Christ. And the understanding of the value that he places upon it, but the place that we actually give ourselves, that the church would be, and as it says in Ephesians 5, a glorious church. That it says a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. And so basically we took our time last week discussing what it is to be a glorious church. We're going to kind of move on in the understanding of the church, but we're also going to kind of do it... Um, in partnership with something that is actually taking place today all throughout the country. And what we're actually going to talk about today is the church's role in society, biblically. What is our role in society? And we're going to actually do that in partnership with something today that's called uh, Pulpit Freedom Sunday. Has anybody heard of Pulpit Freedom Sunday? Basically, Pulpit Freedom Sunday is, and for those of you that are not aware... Um, within this month, the month of June, our Supreme Court is hearing two cases and will release a verdict on two cases regarding same-sex marriage in America. So some of you, when I just said same-sex marriage, you're like, why is she talking about a political issue in church right now? Because somehow that does not belong here. Really what we're going to be actually looking at is the biblical understanding of marriage. And it is not something that government has instituted and it does not have the authority to redefine it is something that was instituted by God before the church was ever instituted and before government was ever instituted. It was instituted at creation. So we're going to look at the biblical understanding of marriage. But also, before we do that, what we're actually going to look at is and define is the church's role in society. What is our role in society? How do we relate to society? And really, for most of you, the reason that there's something even called Pulpit Freedom Sunday, is because all across America, largely it, from the church, we do not address issues such as marriage between one man and one woman, even issues of life, we've been silenced upon those things because we've had a false understanding of the separation between church and state. And I say false understanding because we have not accurately understood it. So basically what we're going to do is understand through scripture what is our role. So today is Pulpit Freedom Sunday. And basically it was two years ago 
that um, there was a group of pastors and leaders that basically came together and said, we're going to ask churches all across America. I think they started out with 68 churches that said, yes, I will biblically define marriage according to the word of God in my church. So it started with 68. I believe this year there's 1,500 across the country that have dedicated today, which is a good number. (laughs) It is alarming in the sense of the number of churches. But you have to understand, largely there's a fear that's come upon the church, and they've actually been told that somehow it's not their place and it's not their role. So in Massachusetts today, we have six churches that have signed on and pledged that they will publicly define Uh, according to the word of God, what marriage is. And the reason this is important for us, and we need to understand that this is not a political or governmental issue, is because most of us will stand back and we'll look at Roe v. Wade that happened 40 years ago, and we'll all sit back and scratch our head and go, where were our parents? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, the insanity of what was happening in society, the culture of death, that has now been exported for the past 40 years. And where was the church? But, you know, in all honesty, I'm just going to say to you, we stand at a very, very similar moment. Mm -hmm. A very similar moment. Mm -hmm. Where, as many of you probably remember a day when same-sex marriage was not legal, legal, and it was more the anomaly and something that was really heard of, whereas our children will be raised in a society that it is a more cultural norm and an accepted reality. And it's our children that will be sitting back going, where were our parents? It's a completely different reality that our children will be raised in. And for those of you that think, and I know there's many in this room that are not married, for those of you that think, well, I'm going to raise my child to understand biblically, I'm going to raise, you need to understand everything from the average American sitcom from if you put your child in public education in Massachusetts and many other states, the normalizing of it is so prevalent all throughout that it's the teaching of tolerance. And before I even go any further, I'm just going to say to every single person in this room, there's many of you that do not know me personally, anything that we address, there is absolutely no judgment and there is no hatred toward the sin of homosexuality. There is no place where we're condemning the individual that is bound in sin. But you need to understand, it is a sin, just as is the sin of pornography. So any man that is bound in pornography, it's a sin of perversion. It's a sin just as the sin of adultery. It's a sin just as in the sin of lust, if you are lusting after another individual. The ground at the cross is level. And they're all sins of the flesh and sins of perversion. It's a perverse spirit. So when we come to the place as the body of Christ of somehow thinking that we need to cater and make somebody feel good about their sin, we are in no way doing them a service, and it is in no way an act of love. It is no more an act of love for me to look at a homosexual and say you were created that way than it would be for me to look at a pedophile and say you were created to lust after children. Just because there is a desire in the heart of man does not mean you were created for that. What that means is there's a symptom of something that is broken, something that is chaotic, and something that is diseased. But just like we don't throw out The man that struggles with pornography, we do not throw out the homosexual. But the the understanding of the church where we have come to such a place of tolerance, it is an injustice towards those that are bound in that sin because they have not found truth and therefore have not found freedom. And so this is why it's important for the church to actually take a biblical stand and a biblical understanding of, number one, the sin of homosexuality, but understanding, too, that we should be vehement in our approach to the protection of marriage as one man and one woman. And if you think it by any stretch of the imagination that I'm going to homeschool my kid, they're never going to be in that reality or that understanding, you need to understand even the prevalency. I'm just going to say this. There's many people that scratch their heads and actually wonder why homosexual desire is increasing so rapidly and there's so many people bound by it. I'll say this to you. In many, 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 many cases, if you are viewing pornography, you many times are viewing not one man and one woman. That in and of itself has just opened you up to perversion. 
Oftentimes, in the nature of pornography, there can be two men and one woman, or two women and one man. You are viewing and partaking in homosexual activity. You have just opened yourself. You're, you are, even if it is one man and one woman, you are viewing the opposite sex and the same sex in, in sexual relations. You have just opened wide the door to that spirit. So what it is, is it's not even so much an issue of homosexuality or heterosexuality or pornography. It's an issue of perversion. When we open up our, our spirit to that, there is no boundary to where the spirit of perversion stops. There's no boundary line of, I will be perverse in this area of my life, but no further. It is a spirit of perversion that perverts what Christ has rightfully intended. And that is sexual union between one man and one woman that are married for life and in covenant relationship till death do us part. That is the only context. So anything outside of that is perversion, and that's what, as a culture, we have opened ourselves up to. So what we're going to look at, number one, is uh, the role of the church as salt and light. Many of you are familiar in Matthew 5. That is, it's a very common passage of scripture that we've talked about and shared about in the house of prayer here. But this is actually very clearly where it speaks about being salt and being light. Actually, if you want to turn there with me. Matthew 5. Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then, then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hidden, nor can, the light, can you light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, lamp and it gives light to all of those who are in the house." What we need to understand is this distinction of being light in the midst of darkness and salt that actually is a preserving quality but also gives flavor. This place where it actually says that that light is not to be put under a basket or under a bushel, but it is to shine before all men that it might see. See, what we actually, and part of the reason Pulpit Sunday is now actually needing to be a Sunday where we're articulating the word of God on cultural issues is because in many ways that's exactly what the church has done. We've taken our light and we've put it under a bushel and said, I in no way want to be offensive to culture or to society. So therefore, I will not speak anything that is offensive or seems intolerant to the heart of man. That's putting our light under a bushel. That the place in the understanding of um, cultural Christianity or the seeker-sensitive Christianity, all of those understandings of Christianity... Really what it comes down to is we are, we're wanting to more identify ourselves as Americans or the American mind, mindset than a biblical mindset. We are continually going to have to be confronted with, am I living under an American mindset or a biblical mindset? I mean, on many of these cultural issues, even within the body of Christ, when we say that somehow we do not want to stand on the side of the word of God, or that we want to make it palatable and appeasing to the heart of man, what we've actually just said is, I do not want to live according to a biblical mindset. I want to live according to an American mindset that then makes me pleasing and acceptable in the eyes of man. And so it's this place of actually choosing. We're more and more going to be confronted and asking ourselves the question, am I of a biblical mindset or an American mindset? And for anybody that tends to think, well, I can be biblical, and so <laughs> it's the understanding, the place of, as Americans, because we have divorced God from our culture, and because in that place, even as you've seen it all throughout our society, the removing of the Ten Commandments, the removing of prayer, all of those things, we have divorced ourselves from fundamental Christianity. And what we've done is we've chosen, chosen the parts that we like, and the parts that are appeasing to us, and we have rejected anything that is offensive or that our carnal mind cannot wrap itself around. And that place, and that, when I say an American mindset, that we're more the fruit of an American's mindset, that's what I mean, it's relativism. That it's relative to the day and the hour and the generation that we live, rather than being relative to the eternal truth of God's word. 
And that's the place that we want to be, is that we want to be those that have a biblical mindset rather than an American mindset. And maybe I shouldn't even say American because I'm excluding it just to our country, but more a relative mindset, a generational mindset that somehow because it's reality or acceptable within this 20-year span, we've just defined ourselves by it rather than the eternal understanding and the eternal wisdom of the Word of God. We actually can find this all throughout scripture. For those of you that have been a part of this community for any length of time, we've spent a large amount of time in the book of Acts. And you actually find the model for the Christian church in the book of Acts. But you also find in the book of Acts that they were persecuted. I mean, you look at all throughout the book of Acts. They were endorsed by heaven. There were signs, wonders, miracles. Multitudes were added to the church. But they were persecuted. The true church of Jesus Christ does not blend in. There are no blurred lines that somehow make us culturally ambiguous or blending into what is the reality and the norm. There was persecution that followed the book of Acts. And it was because they had sided on the side of truth. Jesus actually said in John 15, 18 through 20, this is the understanding and the reality of the New Testament church. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is no greater than its master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. He, Jesus goes so far to say, he doesn't say if they persecute you. They said because they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. What if the standard for the church of Jesus Christ is when persecution returns to the church? The church has returned to the Lord. That we've actually returned to his wisdom, his ways, and his word. That there is a per- and hear me, I mean, I'm, do I, am I looking forward to going to jail for preaching truth? Absolutely not. Am I saying persecution? But I am saying from that place where instead of us blending in and being palatable and acceptable, that there is a place where there is a, a line of demarcation and a distinction upon the body of Christ. It's no longer that it's almost so blurred they can't tell where we actually stand or what our stances are or what our beliefs are. I know it's Jesus, but all the rest is just completely gray. He's literally saying that because they persecuted me, they will persecute you. I mean, in all honesty, most of even Pulpit Freedom Sunday, the origin of it, is actually trying to boost the morale of pastors of saying, this is legal. It's the Alliance Defense Fund actually sends you an email saying, if anybody gives you a hard time, we have thousands of lawyers that work pro bono and we'll cover you. So go ahead and preach the word of the Lord. I mean, it's such an, they're trying to bolster the hearts of pastors to say, don't be fearful. This is your role. The word of God is needed in society. Be salt. Be light. And that's actually what they're trying to call the church of Jesus Christ in America too, is no longer being silent. See, this is what we need to understand. The world and sinners are going to sin. Like, we're not standing here going, naughty culture. Homosexuality is wrong. It is wrong. It's Naughty church for not declaring truth according to the word of God. Really, the rebuke and the discipline is upon the church of Jesus Christ. Because there has been no light set upon a lampstand that has been shining light and illuminating truth for the world to see. Instead, we've put it under a bushel under the guise of being culturally relevant, seeker-sensitive, and not wanting to offend other people. And we've hidden truth from those that need it the most. And it's the place and the call of the Pulpit Freedom Sunday is calling pastors to say, this is your vocation and your role in society is to declare truth and hope to the captive. That there is hope in Jesus' name. 
So the understanding of, of persecution is even according to Jesus, that it is the norm of Christianity. According to the book of Acts, that it is the norm of the book of Acts. So to, just to define our role as a church in society, hear me. J-Hot Boston, First Baptist, all of these churches, it's not the organization or a building that has any kind of responsibility to reform government or a responsibility to get people to vote a certain way. When we say the church and society, just to clearly define this for you, it is the job of the church to raise up disciples of Jesus Christ that will be a faithful witness. And then what that looks like is, you are a mom, you are a dad, you are a student, you are a professional, you own a business. Whatever sector of society that you have a presence, you become salt and light, and you become an agent of transformation wherever you are. It's the equipping and the empowerment, not of the organization of the church, but the individuals that embody the church to be a faithful witness. And that is the place that transformation of society comes, not as we as an organization somehow put a banner out front that says we are pro-life. But the people within that organic body of believers, they champion the cause of life and that they are used in culture, in society. It's the individuals that become change agents in society. If we are effective as a church, we will make disciples who are culture-changing people. So actually, I'm just going to show us a brief video. This will give us an update on what is happening at the Supreme Court uh, this month. Before we then just define, is that going to work? Well, let's see if it does. Understanding of what DOMA is for those of you that don't understand. In short, what these two laws that are being argued in the Supreme Court, it actually would either take the ability and the authority away from the states to define marriage as one man and one woman. It's, DOMA is actually stands for the Defense of Marriage Act. And DOMA, when it says the defense of marriage, it's meaning defending marriage as one man and one woman. And so if that's removed on the Supreme Court level, it no longer is left for states. To, and for those of you that know, there's something like 32 states that have voted. And when it's actually gone to the vote of the people, the vote, ha- the vote of the people has been for the defense of biblical marriage between one man and one woman. And for anybody that kind of feel, feels as though, okay, so there's this sector of society that this is how they choose to live, and those poor people that somehow there's rights or privileges that are taken away from them, there's absolutely no rights or privileges that are taken away. It's more the protection of the definition of marriage that actually is what's standing to be defended. The the understanding that marriage has always been, and according to the word of God, will always be, a man and a woman, and what it actually opens up to when we begin to redefine it. So what we're actually going to do is look at, according to the Word of God, really from creation all the way through. Um, Interesting fact, if you actually look at the Ten Commandments, 
there's actually three of the commandments that actually speak directly to the honoring of father and mother. So when we begin to talk about the redefining of marriage or even um, when it gets debated according to the word of God that somehow there is gray area concerning that, even according to the biblical foundation of the Ten Commandments, God set it in place that children are to honor their mother and their father. He was in no way vague in the sense of saying your legal guardian whether that be two men or two women, but the understanding that it was always in the heart of God and even before time that like the definition according to the word of God, which we'll see over and over and over again throughout the word is he defines it as father and mother, man and woman, that there was actually no other option that that is actually how he defined it. But three of the Ten Commandments actually speak about the fidelity of marriage, speak about the honoring of father, of father and mother, and speak to this place even specifically that God has given us of the roles. Um, Hebrews 13.1, just as a reference before we move forward. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angel, angels unaware. Remember those who were in prison, as though, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Verse 4, let marriage be held in, in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will, be, will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So basically what we're going to do is move through from Genesis to Revelations and the understanding scripturally of marriage and how sacred marriage is in the heart of God. And so that in your life and in your interactions, rather than almost being defined or even being swayed by what has become culturally predominant, we can actually define and delineate our life according to the word of God. Um, I actually read this, and I thought this was very interesting. This is one pastor, the way he actually gave an analogy in the understanding of marriage. He said, um, when talking about marriage as a topic, topic it is really, it's really an uncommon thing. Marriage itself is a common thing, but talking about marriage as an institution is kind of like talking about the oxygen that we breathe. And marriage is a little bit like the air that we breathe. Oxygen is everywhere. It's all around us. Yet we really don't think about oxygen because we can't see it, and we can't touch it, and it is not tangible. And so we often take air for granted. But it is only when our air is altered at, at its essence and it, it, on a molecule, mo molecular level or it is severely polluted do we suddenly realize how important this stuff is and we realize the need for it for our survival. Marriage is like that also. Marriage is all around us and it's every year, everywhere. Yet we can't really see it or touch it. We really don't have conversations about marriage as a human institution. And so we can easily take marriage for granted. But I would submit to you that it is only when marriage is altered in the essence of what it is as a union of one man and one woman will we suddenly realize how important this stuff is and the, and the need for it, our immediate survival as a society and for the generation to come. So much of what we believe is it really is just made up of ideas and assumptions that we soak up from the world around us, which may or may not line up with God's word and his design for human relationships. And things are changing in our world so quickly as a society that we have to ask ourselves, what are God's feelings about these change? I just love the way he actually related it to oxygen. That it's something that is so much a part of our daily life and, and we, cannot, we truly can't live without it. But it's only once it's altered or changed that there will become an understanding of how desperately we depend upon it. And the same is true, actually, for our society. Marriage is the foundation for all of society. It's the foundation of marriage. It's the, the, I'm sorry, the, the foundation for families. It's the foundation for churches. It's the foundation for your neighborhood. The fact of the matter is the stability in your neighborhood, the, the presence of violence or the lack of violence, all of those things, you can actually go back and look into the homes of those places and look at the marriage that's taking place. Whether that is a marriage in place that is healthy or unhealthy, you're going to see children that are the fruit of that. 
If it's a lack of marriage, that it's a single parent, and so there's instability in the children, all the way throughout society, that's what we see, is actually it goes back to the fundamentals of marriage. There's many things in our society that 10, 15, or even 20 years ago would have been completely unthinkable. But there are things that now are changing and evolving, and because of that, we live in a very different society today, and that's why the importance of something at the Supreme Court, that some of you may not have even known was at the Supreme Court, the understanding to weigh these things, obviously prayerfully, but also be a voice in society, because it'll be 10 to 15 years from now, that rather than thinking about a far-off, distant vote in the Supreme Court, you'll actually be faced with the reality of how it affects your day-to-day life in front of you. Which many of us, we, we feel like court decisions and things like that are so out at a distance that it's not until we actually have the 10, 15, 20-year ramifications that we're actually wrestling over the implications that it has upon our life. Genesis 1, 26 through uh, 27. Then God said, let us make, make man in our own image according to our likeness. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father. Once again, there's the distinction. A man is going to leave his father and his mother. It's the presupposed idea that it's a man and a woman that a child is raised by. That is the foundation and that is the reality. And shall cleave to his wife. He's specifying wife, not cleave to his mate or the choice of his desire, shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Once again, it is completely being, there's a distinction being made and defined according to the word of God. Um, That's actually Genesis, just the understanding of really from the very root of creation, the understanding of the roles of male and female. Jim Garlow, I don't know how many of you are familiar with, familiar with him. He's from Skyline Church in California. He was very instrumental with Prop 8 when it took place in California. But this is actually what he said. He said, we know that God is neither male nor female, yet we are made in his image. In spite of the fact that we are, as individuals, made in the image of God, the true, full image is expressed when two halves of humanity complement each other and become one. If I understand the role of marriage properly, a male by himself is not fully a representation of the description of the image of God. And the same is true, that a woman is not fully a representation of the description of God. I understand the early pages of Genesis, if I understand the early pages of Genesis correctly, a female by herself cannot do justice to the full spectrum of the image of God. However, When the two complementary halves of humanity unite, physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and sociologically, the image of God containing both tenderness and strength is manifested. Male Male and female are made anatomically, emotionally, and spiritually for oneness. Husband and wife joined together represent the full spectrum of the image of God. When God was declaring in Genesis, let us make them in our image. It's the understanding that male and female together is the representation of of God upon the earth. It's the reflection of who he is. So when we begin to alter that according to our brokenness and according to our fractured identities and according to our sin, it's actually the image of God that we are seeking to alter and that we begin to taint and pervert. And when it it speaks back to this place of, it's the very image of God that is revealed through the uniting of male and female in this first union of uh, Adam and Eve. Marriage is then reaffirmed by Jesus. Jesus actually addresses the issue of marriage. In Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Jesus himself repeated and quoted Genesis 2, 24. Jesus said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. 
So once again, we actually see Jesus is quoting Genesis. And once again, we actually see the defining of the roles of male and female, that there is a distinction. And the defining of mother and father, the distinction, that there is not a place of option for the object of your desire. And then in Mark 10, 6-8, Jesus says again, but from the beginning of creation, Jesus declares it. This is from the very beginning of creation. God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. So Jesus basically, even through his life, the preaching and the teaching that he set forth, Matthew 19, 3-4, is that marriage was instituted by God from the beginning. Jesus also, um, in Matthew 19, 4, he declared that marriage was designed for, the, for those created, male and female. That that is actually the understanding and the de definition of marriage, that it was intended and ordained for them. Matthew 9, 5, marriage is for a man and a wife who become one flesh for the purpose of creating offspring, for the purpose of creating life. Matthew 19, 6, marriage is a union that God joins, not the state. He's literally saying, what God has joined together, let no man separate. It's the understanding that it's not because the state recognizes you, that it's something that God has initiated, ordained, and instituted. Matthew 19, 7 through 9, man may try to put asunder, but only God can put asunder, that he actually reserved that authority for himself. And then we also find, we, co we covered last week, where Paul is actually, the Apostle Paul, is speaking of the mystery of marriage. Paul is actually declaring it and, and relating it to the mystery of the bride of Christ and Christ. This understanding of marriage in Ephesians 5, 25 through uh, 31, Paul actually repeats Genesis 1, 26 to the church of Ephesus that he might present himself to, uh, present himself to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. For this reason, a man shall leave his, once again, father and mother. Over and over throughout the word of God, he's given this distinction of the understanding of father and a mother, and shall leave to cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. See, this is the understanding, is number one from the very creation, that it is the image of God. But then number two, that marriage literally is the revealing of the mystery of Christ and the church. That he has great passion, he has great jealousy over that institution, because it's for the revealing of his glory and the mystery of Christ and the church. That it is not something that can, man can taint or even uh, come in and decide to redefine as he chooses. Marriage is revealed by John at the culmination. We actually talked about this uh, yesterday. As far as all of human history is leading up to this understanding of Christ and his bride. That it's all leading up to the marriage of the Lamb. That, And specifically in Revelations, he is speaking of the church of Jesus Christ. And think about it even this way. I, I mean, on the understanding of the church and his jealousy for the church. The whole book of Revelations is seven books written to who? The church. He's the culmination of it all. He's addressing the church of Jesus Christ. So anybody that kind of thinks he's going to like do away with it or push it aside or he's going to move on without it. I mean, all of Revelations, it comes down to, I mean, number one, he's correcting and rebuking, but he's also praising the things that they have done well and the things that he actually esteems within them. But it's the understanding, once again, he is addressing the church and even calling for a bride for himself. And that's, it's that place that marriage is something that he is jealous for. Marriage is his, the revealing of himself, the union of man and woman, that we cannot see the image of God through two men or two women that decide to marry, that there is something of the essence of his nature, his character, his image, and his glory that is lacking. Even as we've read previously, that the understanding emotionally, spiritually, 
physically, every which way, that the design of man and woman is for the creation of life together. That that is an impossibility with any other configuration, however you want to put it. That it was the, the wisdom of God, the way that he designed it. And the extraordinary thing is that all throughout the word of God, we see the cross as a symbol. We see the symbol of the cross as something that he is jealous for, and it's revealing who he is. The only other symbol that is consistent from Genesis to Revelation is marriage. It's the only other symbol. So if you kind of sit back and wonder, like, what's the big deal? Why don't we just let these people marry? It's, you know what? It's not even about them living together in their home if that is how they choose to. It's when you start messing with something that God has instituted. It's something that belongs to him. It is not anything that we should be touching. It's nothing that even the law of man can alter. And really, the extraordinary thing is in a culture, when we want to define something that was instituted and ordained by God, it really speaks of the overarching reach where we dare touch something that is sacred and holy and it reveals the very image of God. It is something that should not be touched. You know, I've often even heard, and I don't can't say I agree with it, but I've heard teachers even say, or preachers even say, allow them, you know, uh, what is it, uh, unions, uh, same-sex unions, civil unions, the place where at least we're calling it something else. At least the understanding, and like we have already gone through Scripture, it's something from Genesis. That he is ordained and he is set apart. That is sacred unto him. It was instituted before any other government or institution. It was from the very foundation of the world in the creation of humanity. So when we begin to alter that, what becomes of humanity? I mean, the extraordinary thing, I listened to this testimony. It was actually, it was a young man that had been... um, he had been raised by a lesbian couple. This was like a good 50 years ago. He's like in his 50s now. He had been raised by, and he doesn't claim to be a Christian. He's not saying, I'm born again. Jesus touched me. I saw the light. Hallelujah. Like he's not claiming any Christianity whatsoever. He actually claims that he's bisexual. He claims that he has great confusion over his sexuality because of being raised in a lesbian home. He goes through kind of the pain of all of that. But I, I, I share his story to say this. He's actually opposed to same-sex marriage. And he's opposed to the radical agenda of homosexuality. And this is what he says. He says, I am a conservative specifically because I lived in the fruit of what they're fighting for. And it gave me nothing but chaos and confusion. He said, I've never fit in in society. He said, I can't define myself as a man or how to relate to men. And I can't define myself as a woman and how to relate to women. There was no gender role specified within our home. See, what you have to understand is even in marriage, the very essence of marriage in in Ephesians, it says, as Christ is head of the household, and it it goes on to speak of the role of husband and wife. And it actually says to wives, submit yourself just to your husband, even as you would to Christ who is the head. See, hear me. It's the understanding. We obviously submit one to another. I'm not getting into this huge, like, you know, women are suppressed and we, whatever, whatever. Me and my husband have a great relationship. He values my opinion as much as I value his. (laughs) But you know what? It's the clarity of roles. There is something freeing. All of you guys know this. In your work environment, in your school environment, in your whole environment, when there is the clarity of roles, it gives the freedom to operate. It gives the freedom of, okay, now I get it. Okay, I get it. You're in charge. Okay, now that I got that, I can work with that. I'm not in charge. Okay, good. But as long as I think I'm in charge, (laughs) we're going to have confusion. (laughs) It's the clarity of roles. And see, when you place two women or you place two men, all of a sudden the roles become very, very confused. Who is the dominant? Who is the passive? Who is the head? Who is submitting? I mean, the defining of roles, because no longer do you have a gender. And I understand there's many, this younger generation, because we live in such a feminist society, you're like, whoa, she just talked about gender roles. Like, is she trying to say, like, it's the girl's job to do the dishes and the laundry? No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm I'm talking about the God-ordained that you were created in his image, 
And there's something of the nature of God that only a female can reflect. And there's something of the nature of God that only a man can reflect. And in the very essence of homosexuality, let's just go there, we all know this, even in that, there's one woman that takes on the masculine form. And there's a woman that takes on the feminine form. And even, let's just, and, and, and the same is true with males. One takes on the masculine, and one takes, there's a role playing happen, happening. They're actually simulating what God designed as a male and a female. Do you ever find a homosexual relationship where both of them take the male role? Seriously? Never seen it. Or even with, in lesbian relationships, that, that both of them take the feminine, or both of them take the, the, the male role? And that's exactly what's happening. It's the imitating of the God-ordained structure yes. of male and female. Yes. But it's been perverted. Mm-hmm. There's actually no even uh, genuine, organic, God-ordained way for sexual intimacy mm-hmm. apart from two people of the opposite gender. Mm-hmm. So this young man, when he shares, and he's in his 50s, when he goes on to share his under... I'm sorry if this is, like, very explicit for some of you, but in essence, I mean, it needs to be. I mean, it's the generation in which we live. Any of you that have a television, if you turn it on, your sitcom has innuendos to homosexuality. It's everywhere in your face. Our young adults, from the time of kindergarten in Massachusetts, are reading storybooks about a prince marrying a prince. I mean, it's being introduced on the youngest, lowest level. In our high schools, they're actually teaching young people, how do you know you are not a homosexual unless you experiment? That's the question in our school assemblies. When it comes down to tolerance, and I understand sometimes they use the language of anti-bullying, it really turns into, if you have not experimented, how do you know it? you don't like it better? Let me ask you this question. Why are they introducing experimentation even to young people that are not even married? It should be out of the question, off boundaries, not even being introduced. So if that is the level of perversion and introduction to sexual identity in our culture, how much more does the church need to take the word of God and say, according to the word of God, this is the reality and this is the authority, instead of shying away from it or, or backing away from the honest language of it. So this young man, he basically goes on to say, he says, I am a conservative. I'm against same-sex marriage. But I am bisexual. He's chosen, he's basically said, because of the confusion, he's like, I don't, I'm not sure. Like, I could go male, I could go female. He's chosen to marry a wife. They've had children together. And this is what he said. He said, all the days of my life, I have made a vow. I will be faithful to her. That is not to violate with another woman or another man. And he actually goes on to speak about STDs and AIDS, and how the epidemic, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual, really what this comes down to is any society that wants to have free reign of their sexual desire without actually saying, this is what I am choosing, and I am bringing this into submission to my will. It will not rule over me. It will not dictate my actions. He's saying, I am not going to walk out on this woman just because I may have a desire for a man. And literally what he's saying is I reject that entire liberal left-handed side because I'm the fruit of it. And it messed me up. He says, everything they are fighting for, I lived in that reality. And he said, and I do not want it for a society. You'll never have understanding of how you actually relate to a man unless you've been called forth by a man and seen that modeled. You'll never have understanding of actually how to relate to a female or be a female unless you've seen the roles, the roles as God has ordained and distinguished and designed of one man and one woman. He called them male and female. And then over and over throughout scripture, he says, a man will leave his mother and father because it is God ordained that for the health of children, they have both roles present and active and calling them forth in 
into health. It is the life of our children that is at stake. This has nothing to do with robbing a 37-year-old man of a marriage certificate. This has everything to do with a younger generation that marriage was instituted by God. Marriage was instituted by God for the procreation and the health of our children. That we would have a healthy offspring. I can't even fathom to conceive what it looks like a generation from now with children that are raised with such gender confusion. With children that have been raised with such experimentation. And even furthermore, because of the issue of pornography being so prevalent in our society, the way that that opens the door even to the younger generation for experimentation with genders. And this is why, with Doma going to the court, it is an issue that you should be concerned about. This is not a far-off legal issue that does not affect you or your household because you're just going to bunker down and stay safe. It is something as a society that determines our health and well-being for generations to come. It is something that we as a generation, I'm going to tell you, will be judged for the question 40 years from now, when we have a generation that somehow wants to now reverse it in the courts and turn it back like we're trying to do with Roe v. Wade. The question is, where were we? And instead of standing back that somehow we don't care and it does not affect me, we need to understand that it, it affects the very fabric of society, the foundation of biblical marriage. It's what God ordained from Genesis all the way through Revelations. And we actually find in Revelations 21.9, Then came one of the seven angels, who had six bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. God the Father is fashioning a bride for his son, the groom, such that somehow we, the universal church, are someday going to be joined to Christ for all of eternity. So in the Bible, we see that the church is the bride of Christ. So just in closing, number one, we we see through the word of God that uh, the place of biblical marriage is rooted in creation. In the Old Testament, it reflects something of the nature of of God upon the earth. It's reaffirmed by Jesus in the gospel. It is explained by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And it is revealed by John in Revelations. Marriage celebrates the beauty and diversity of of the two parts of the human race coming together. And life springs forth from it. And the next generation is born. Why don't we stand to our feet and specifically let's pray for Doma that is going to be ruling on in the court this week. God, we ask, Lord, as your body and as your bride, God, that we would be passionate and zealous and concerned for the things that you are concerned for. God, we ask, Lord, that every place that we as the body of Christ in America have divorced ourselves from issues that we label as political or social or whatever that may be, Father, we ask, God, that all across America, God, that there truly would be a great awakening. God, we ask, Lord, that as pastors and teachers and even six churches in Massachusetts today, Lord, have committed to speak upon biblical marriage. God, we say, Lord, awaken us, Lord, to the beauty of your word. God, awaken us even to the authority of your word. God, we ask, Lord, as a generation, God, that you would deliver us from cultural relativity, Father, from defining our lives according to cultural norms. And God, we say, Father, we long for a biblical reality and a biblical understanding. Lord, that we would be defined by the word of God. Lord, we lift before you even the court ruling, God, to take place at the Supreme Court this month. And God, we ask, God, even for the the two or three weeks that may be remaining before this ruling, God, we ask, Lord, that all throughout this nation, God, that there would be solemn assemblies of your church gathering together on their face before you. Lord, crying out for intervention. God, we ask you, Lord, even now, God, we say we don't want to stand as those, Lord, that look at our children a generation from now, God, with guilt upon our hands, Lord, that we were not active, that we were not a voice, that the church was silent and passive. 
God, we confess to you, God, in many ways, God, we are the church of Matthew 5, Lord, that has put our light under a bushel, rather than shining it before all men. So, God, we say, Lord, Lord, from state to state, Lord, from the west coast to the east coast, from the north to the south, God, raise up voices of truth. God, raise up voices of righteousness. God, raise up those, Father, that would declare your word without shame. Lord, that would boldly and clearly declare the word of the Lord. God, we say, Father, that we do not want to be a product of the American mindset. But God, we want to be a faithful witness of a biblical reality. God, we want to be birthed in a biblical mindset and clear theology. God, we ask, Father, that you would forgive us, God, for every place that we have divorced ourselves, God, for issues that are dear and near to your heart. Lord, even as we looked at this issue today, God, even as it's the very image of God upon the earth, God, we ask, Father, that you would continually convict us of our inactivity, God. God, convict us, God, even of our individual mindsets, God, that somehow as long as we are safe and secure, as long as we are protected and somehow cloistered, that it's as if uh, decisions or even laws being passed will not affect us. God, we ask that you would truly give us a generational mindset. Yes, God. God, we just come before you, Father. God, we recognize, Father, that salvation can never come, Lord, healing can never come to those bound in homosexuality, Lord, unless truth is declared and preached. So God, we come before you, Father, today not with anger or frustration or even judgment. God, we come before you, God, with hearts, Lord, that have love and mercy for those that are bound in sin. And God, we ask you truly, Father, that you would raise up, Lord, a voice of truth, but God, also a healing anointing in the church of Jesus Christ. God, we ask you, Lord, even in this place, Father, God, that you would gather unto us, Lord, those, Lord, that have been stricken and bruised and wounded in the area of perversion. God, we ask, Lord, that you would bring them, Father, so that we could see, Lord, the captives set free. God, we ask, Lord, in the city of Cambridge, God, for a mass exodus for those, Lord, that are bound in homosexual activity. God, those that are bound by desires of perversion, God, we say, Father, Lord, bring a delivering anointing. God, we ask, Father, for the love of God, the love of God that, that alone can set man free. The love of God that alone can make man whole. You liberate those that are in bondage. Lord, when we have glimpses, 
Lord, moments where we glimpse into the eternal and we understand the heart of God. Lord, we ask that, Lord, for our Supreme Court justices. Lord, we ask, Father, that they, the fear of the Lord would come upon them. And God, that they would even have moments of understanding the eternal wisdom of God. God, that it's not a discriminatory act, but it's a loving act in protecting mankind and society when we order our lives according to the wisdom of God. God, we ask in our country, Father, that you would even redefine what love truly is. Lord, that love would not be defined by tolerance, but love would be defined by contending for the greater good. The greatest good in our lives is being ordered by the word of God. 